soul and to cleanse me of sin and to fill me with your spirit and help me live for you. In your name, amen. We have been learning about seldom mentioned people in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, that we can learn about uh, because there's a lot of things, even though they're not mentioned often, uh, they had a huge impact on the first century church. And as we've looked at some of these people, they have ranged all over the place from wealthy business people to uh, middle class uh, tradespeople to even underprivileged laborers. And yet each of them, as they heard the message of Jesus and they opened their life to Christ, he brought life change that only he could bring to them and they began to contribute in some really positive ways to the culture and again to the church. And so today, we're going to learn from a person who is only mentioned three times in the entire New Testament and it's all in the same uh, letter or gospel. It's the Gospel of John. And his name is Nicodemus, but you know me. I like to kind of give him nicknames to shorten it down. So let's call him Nick. So we're going to talk about Nick. And I know it's a little cutesy with the title, Nick at Night. But uh, <laughs> uh, he really first approached Jesus uh, in the evening. But anyway, here's what I want us to understand about Nick. He grew up in a religious family. So he's a little different than maybe some of the other people that we've looked at. He believed in God and he found a sense of security and stability in following all the rules and the discipline of his religion. Uh, he excelled as a student in school and he respected his teachers. And because of that, he actually decided that he would like to be a teacher himself. And so he graduated with a degree in Jewish theology and uh, he was accepted into a group of highly specialized and respected religious leaders of his day. Uh, those people had a lot of power and influence in the culture, especially among the Jewish people. But there was also a little bit of a political kind of a connection with the Roman government. And this elite group of Jewish scholars and religious leaders were known as the Sanhedrin. Well, all of his hard work was paying off. He had a good job, he was respected, his life and his belief system was solid. There was just one problem. This guy named Jesus, this guy named Jesus showed up and he started getting a lot of attention from the Israelite people and the Jewish people because he was doing some amazing things. Um, he was doing things that were humanly impossible. People that were encountering Jesus were having things happen to them like paraplegics were able to walk again. And those who were blind, some of them from birth, actually got their eyesight and they were able to see. And then if that weren't enough, there were people who were deaf that literally couldn't hear and they were able to hear again after encountering Jesus in his power. And so this was gaining a lot of attention and if that weren't enough, Jesus was teaching people about God. But he hadn't been to any of the rabbinical schools. He, he hadn't had the formal training like the Pharisees and like Nick had gone through. And he was beginning to gain a larger following than they were. In fact, there was 
one incident where the crowd had gotten so large that there were thousands of people there, and it was even reported by someone who was there at that event that Jesus took a small amount of food and fed the entire crowd. So Nick and his colleagues, they were upset about all of this because they had worked hard to get to where they were, and they didn't want to lose what they had worked so hard for. And because Nick was concerned about this, he wanted to take a different approach because some of his colleagues had tried some different things with Jesus. And so he thought rather than confront Jesus when the crowd is around, I'll try to approach him when there's not a big crowd of people around. And the best opportunity for that came as he kept looking for that opening It came one evening. We're not sure how late in the evening it's referred to as being at night, but it was a good time because there weren't a bunch of people around, and it gave Nick the opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus about this. So let's pick it up in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and let's look at it. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's kind of like a, what? (laughs) Not even a hello, nice to meet you. And so, so Nicodemus asks a question to Jesus in response to that. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, Nicodemus is using a little bit of sarcasm here, but they're getting a conversation going. And I'll, I'll clarify a little bit more about this in a moment. So just follow the path of the conversation back and forth. Jesus answered, And said, well, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. And so it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus said, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? So here's some important things for us to notice in this passage. First of all, I would call Nicodemus at this point a skeptic. He was cautiously curious. He was approaching Jesus differently than his colleagues had in the past where we can read about in the scriptures. Um, And we don't know Nicodemus' motivation. A lot of times, and I know even myself as I've read this in the past, I thought, well, you know, he, maybe the Lord was touching his heart and so he genuinely wanted to know more about Jesus. But it could possibly be that he figured, well, you know, the other Pharisees' approach didn't work, so I'm going to try to approach Jesus at night and check him out and see if he's for real or not, and maybe I can catch him in something. So we don't know the motivation of Nicodemus, but what we do see is he did this. He approached Jesus with respect. So even though he may have disagreed, uh, he, he approached him with respect, and he did recognize his credibility. 
If you're listening to this today and you are a skeptic about Jesus or about Christianity, there's something you can learn from Nicodemus's approach. Instead of being all haughty and arrogant and thinking that you know it all and Christianity and Jesus is wrong and you formed your opinion and you're just now going to look at it as a way that you can find proof that it's untrue, you should at least show respect. And really, that should be our approach toward anyone who has a, a disagreement with us is that we should approach them with respect. Actually, even in the New Testament, we're instructed as followers of Jesus when we're talking to people who uh, are, are not believers or who are outside the church, so to speak, that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, but do it with gentleness and respect. Because if you don't show respect, you're not going to get anywhere with anybody. There's just walls are going to go up. So Nicodemus was wise in this way. He was cautiously curious. And so he showed Jesus respect. In fact, he even called him rabbi, which in the day in that culture, that was a compliment. That, that meant like um, my great one or honored sir. And it was a term that was only used by someone who had uh, someone as their teacher, so here again, Nicodemus, even though he might not have agreed with Jesus, he respected him and he was referring to him, respecting his knowledge because he, he, he's like, yeah, okay, this guy hasn't been to school, but he does seem to know a lot about God. So that's something that we can learn from this situation. Here's the other thing. Nicodemus asked questions to spur further discussion. Again, he wasn't trying to be smart-alecky about it, but he was, and, and the, first, the, the first question he asked might seem a little ridiculous when Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And I'll come to that in a moment as to why Jesus approached Nicodemus that way. But you know, Nicodemus just kind of came back and he said, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can somebody go back in their mother's womb and be born again? Is that what you're talking about? And he wasn't doing it to be smart-alecky. Again, it was a probing question. He was basically saying, hey, explain a little more about what you mean there, because obviously I know you don't mean that. So in our skepticism, we need to ask good questions that we can actually learn from rather than to ask a question to try to trip someone up. And then here's another thing that Nicodemus did it, as he approached Jesus is um, he had to listen to learn. How many of us, and I, I am this way, I, I get this way, I have to catch myself, but how many of us, whether it's in a marriage relationship or some kind of a dating relationship or just any kind of a relationship, work relationship, whatever, or maybe you're getting into a discussion with somebody you disagree with, whether it's over politics or, uh, you know, whatever, religion. And you, you're listening to other person, but while they're talking, you're not really listening to understand. You're just waiting for your opportunity, and you're already thinking about what you're going to say in response. That's not listening to understand. That's just waiting for your opportunity. And so I, I counsel people in marriage that you got to be careful to do this. If you're getting into a discussion and an argument and somebody's actually trying to tell you their side of the story and their perception, you need to listen to them. And you really need to hear what they're saying. That way you can maybe get some improvement in your relationship. But so often we get upset and all we do is we listen and we're just wait. We don't really hear what they're saying. We're just waiting. Well, I'm going to tell you my side of the story and how I feel. And that doesn't get us anywhere. Well, Nicodemus didn't take that approach because the questions that he asked, it's obvious that he was listening to Jesus. Now, again, we don't know 
what he, his conclusion he drew. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus responded to Nick's skepticism with information. Now, he did kind of um, zing Nicodemus a little bit, and I don't think it was intentional to put him down. He was asking an honest question that I think made Nick think. He said, Nick, I'm telling you stuff that's in the Scripture. It's, it's in the Old Testament, which that was the Testament at that time. There was no Old and New Testament. New Testament was being formed in Christ. But when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, some of this stuff he was saying is actually in the Old Testament. And so Jesus was pointing out, saying, you're a teacher in Israel, and, and you, don't, you don't know this stuff? So let's take a look at it now. Here is what Jesus taught the teacher and what Nicodemus, even in his skepticism, at least was willing to listen to. The first thing that we see is that Jesus made a point to Nicodemus, who had grown up in religion and rituals and following the rules, and my spiritual heritage and my hope of heaven is in me being a Jewish person and being born in the nation of Israel because that's the covenant that God has made with us. So Nicodemus obviously was basing his whole hope of heaven and the kingdom of God based on his birth and his heritage and then what he had done to work his way up through the system. If anybody deserved heaven, it would certainly be him and the Pharisees because they were taking this serious. But Jesus rocked him back on his heels and said, unless you're born again spiritually, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And I think that's what shook Nicodemus and why he kind of said that said that question. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? My, I mean, you know, my whole spirituality is up in my identity and, and what I've been born in and my religious heritage and how well, are you saying I got to somehow be born a different way or enter into my mother's womb and come up through some different way in my heritage? And again, he was being sarcastic. But Jesus was making the point that your religious heritage isn't enough. How does that apply to you and I today? Well, I think Jesus would say, even if you were born in a Christian home, even if your parents were Christians and you were brought up in Christianity or whatever form of Christianity, that's not enough to get you into heaven. It's your response to God. It's a spiritual thing that he works in your heart. And every single one of us have to be born spiritually. And that doesn't come through us. There's not a single person listening to this message today, sitting here or at home or wherever you are, that are alive today and wherever you are because you worked for it, right? I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be born white. I didn't ask to be born and get to a point where I'm bald. I didn't ask to be born and not grow very tall and be short. And this is the thing that upsets me about all this racial garbage that we're hearing. None of us asked to be born the way we were born, and we should love each other, Amen. And we need to acknowledge that. Anyway, I don't want to sidetrack here. But none of us asked to be born. But what we had to do is we had to learn to respond to that birth, right? So as you were born, you started to breathe. And then you started learning how to use your mouth and to eat and, and all of those things. And we grew up and we learned to feed ourselves and dress and go on through life. It's the same way spiritually. You cannot work your way into heaven. It is a work that God does in you. It is a spiritual birth, and there's not a daggone thing you can do to get it. 
But when God offers it to you and that spiritual birth begins to happen in you, you absolutely need to respond to it. You need to believe, receive by faith Christ as your Savior, and then begin to learn how to live every day and walk in Him and grow spiritually. This is what Jesus is saying. And that's why people that have never been born again spiritually, they don't even see the kingdom of God at work. That's why we got so many people in the world today that are trying to explain how we got here some other way without God. Well, it can't be God. It's got to be some other way. There are people that are following all kinds of rules and regulations and belief systems and religions, and it's because they cannot even see the kingdom of God because they do not have that spiritual birth within them. And so it's important for us when God's Spirit moves and begins to touch our soul, our spirit, our mind, it is important for us to respond to that and not to commit spiritual suicide and just walk away and say, I'm not going to do that. So the other thing that Jesus teaches is that spiritual life surpasses ritual life. It is not about your rituals. It's not about doing everything right. And then eventually, if you do things well enough, you'll get to heaven. No, it's all about, again, responding to God's spirit moving in you and then you learning to live a spiritual life in response to that. That far surpasses any ritual you'll ever do. And again, your response to God determines your destiny. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus was talking about spiritual things to Nicodemus and and saying some of this stuff, this stuff is in the Old Testament. There's one particular passage for sure, and I think this is why Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this principle. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through uh, 26, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically I'll just kind of paraphrase, quote it. God is speaking to the nation of Israel, this religious heritage people. He's speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, and this is what he tells the nation, the people. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Because the people were getting caught up in their religious heritage and the rules and regulations, and and actually in, in doing that, they were actually not obeying God. They were walking away. They were rejecting him. They were not even following what they were supposed to be doing though they thought they were. And Jesus said, you know, there's, or God said through Ezekiel, you know, there's coming a day when I'm just going to take that old stony heart out of you that you don't understand, and I'm going to put a new heart in you, and I'm going to put a new spirit in you. So this concept has been around uh, the whole time. And that's why Jesus confronted Nicodemus and said, you mean you're a teacher and you don't understand this principle? So it goes on and Jesus says this in verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Of course, he's referring to himself there. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is a really weird statement that Jesus makes here, and I'm actually going to try to remember to come back to it in a little bit, a little later in the sermon. So I hope I don't forget. Lord, don't let me forget this. But I want to, I want to move ahead, and then we'll reference back to, to this. And then is that famous verse that is recorded um, that many of you have heard about or are familiar with, whether you went to church or not, uh, but if you went to Sunday school and, and if you watch football games or a lot of sporting events, John three sixteen. Well, here's in the flow of this conversation with Nick at night, here is this statement, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, remember that, and remember this weird little incident that Jesus mentioned about Moses lifting up a serpent in the, snake, a, a, a serpent in the wilderness on a pole. And again, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But as Jesus goes on there and he's talking about the verdict is in and light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light and so they've kept away from the light. And of course, Jesus was referring to himself as the light of the world because he is the spiritual light and uh, brings that life and that light. And he said, people who are walking in darkness, they're already in condemnation because they won't come to the light. He's like, I didn't come to condemn the world. They're already condemned. I came to save the world. And people are showing their condemnation is just because they won't come to me. They're continuing to refuse to come to the truth and come to me. And basically what Jesus was describing there was the life of a follower of Jesus. Because to follow Jesus or to become a Christian or to be born again is not just a decision you made once a long time ago when you were in Bible school or wherever you were, and since that time you've just lived however you wanted to live. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is continually walking in the light of His Word, His Holy Spirit presence, allowing Him to work in our lives instead of wandering off and walking in the dark all the time. And I'll tell you, the stuff that we're seeing in our world today culturally is absolute spiritual darkness. Don't believe that it's woke and we've woken up and realized the light. The wokeness is a lot of spiritual darkness. And I know that's going to offend a lot of people. But again, if you're skeptical about it, I'm just asking you to consider all the evidence. And don't just hear what you want to hear. Don't get caught up in the cancel culture because you may be canceling some truth that you really need to hear. And so all of us need to be open to listening and considering all of the evidence and all of the truth. And we'll come to that in a moment because we see Nick being fair-minded even though he was in the midst of some peers that wanted to cancel Jesus and they were in a cancel culture. I, I know some of you maybe are tired of me talking about this, but isn't it amazing that every week in every situation we've looked at in the Scripture about these seldom-mentioned people, they all faced a cancel culture of their day and their time. So don't think that the Scripture is not relevant to you and I today as followers of Jesus. And we learn in the Scripture how to face against that kind of pressure. And we're going to see it again today with Nick. So the next time that Nicodemus is mentioned is during a Jewish holiday. It's called the Festival of Booths. And I said booths, T-H, not booze. <laughs> Wasn't the Festival of Booze. Uh, but anyway, there might have been some boozing. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> um, another name for it was a, the Festival of Tabernacles or Tents. And basically, it was a national holiday in Israel, and they were celebrating a time in their national history, just like we do in America and other countries do in their countries. They celebrate some of their uh, history. Well, the Israelite people were celebrating in this annual national holiday when they were delivered from Egypt, and they were all traveling in a mass group uh, through the wilderness and, and heading on to the land that God had promised them. And during that time on the trek, they had to make 
temporary shelters for themselves to live in because they, they all didn't have canvas tents. I mean, some of them probably had some canvas or, or some leather and tents that they could use, but uh, they would often have to, have to fashion tents or shelters using uh, palm branches and sticks and whatever they had, you know, just, just like you would see today a survivalist in the, in the woods. And so what they would do is they would commemorate, though, how God had guided them, even though they were kind of nomadic and going on that journey, he did bring them to the promised land. So this is the festival that they were celebrating, and Jesus was growing in his popularity at this point, and he was actually there in Jerusalem celebrating this event with the people. And so, again, his popularity was growing, but so was the anger and the jealousy of the Pharisees. So let's take a look at it in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. And then John, who is recording this, again, an eyewitness at the time, he puts a little commentary in here. By this, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So again, John's putting a little commentary saying, even though God's Spirit was moving and working, it was not in the way that Jesus was talking about because that didn't happen until after Jesus rose from the dead, conquered death bodily, spent time with the apostles, Uh, over a period of about 40 days or so, then he ascended into heaven and he told them, I'm going to go back into heaven, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm sending my spirit into the world so that wherever you go, I am with you. I will not only be with you, but will be in you. And so this is what, again, and we're talking about this whole thing that spirituality and spiritual response to Christ's spirit in our lives is so much, it far surpasses our rituals and our uh, religious thoughts. So in verse 40, we pick it up. It says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, well, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, well, how can Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And once again, we see in their culture, just like today, there was a bunch of people that had opinions about something and they had no understanding. Just like today, there are people who will post stuff online or get in conversations and give you their opinion about religion or about Jesus or about the Bible, and they haven't even read it. Or if they've read it, they've read one one thousandth of it. They've not read the entire Bible. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have read the entire Bible front to back, Genesis to Revelation? Don't raise your hand. Well, I see it. I said, no, that's good. Because I think if I asked you to raise your hand, a lot of you would be embarrassed. And you should be, at least, if you haven't. Because some of you have been believers for years. And this is how we learn. And this is why our culture is in the mess it's in. Because nobody reads the Bible, hardly. But everybody has an opinion about it. Our culture is so biblically illiterate anymore. It's why we've allowed so many things in our culture to take over that actually is addressed in the Scripture 
And it's why God said that he sent his judgment on the people of Canaan land because they were following all these practices and God was uh, blessing Israel not because of their righteousness but because God said, I'm bringing judgment on these people because they have totally forsaken me and they have made a mess of society. And so I want to bring you in and I want you to show them how a good society would live. Oh, that's another sermon for another day. But I'm telling you, we better wake up and read the Bible. So these people here didn't read the Bible. They heard about Jesus and they said, well, how could he be the Messiah? Because the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Here's a newsflash, what they didn't know. He was born in Bethlehem. Now, again, they didn't have the means to learn like we did today as far as all the media and the print and everything. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Many of them just didn't know it. They were ignorant of it. And then other people have said, well, now, the Scripture says that, you know, all the prophets and stuff, they come from Jerusalem and everything, and it doesn't say anything. The Scripture doesn't say anything about a prophet or Messiah coming from up north in that little village of Nazareth in Galilee. Well, here's a news flash. In Isaiah, one of the prophets that they had, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 and verse 6, clearly says that out of Galilee from the north, a light would shine. And it would shine to the Gentiles. And then it goes on when it gets to verse 6, and it says, A child would be born unto us, and his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Hmm. Oh, no prophet comes out of Galilee? Again, I'm not, I'm not putting them down. It may sound like it. But what I'm saying is we form our opinions without getting the full picture and the full knowledge. And we do the same thing today. So what we got to do is get educated and be open to listening to all of the evidence. Again, this is not just for skeptics. This is for you and I as followers of Jesus because we can be just as bad and just as judgmental. So we need to listen well and learn well. So in verse 43, it goes on and it says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Hmm, gee, that's never happened before. Still happens today. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So here's Nick and his colleagues now, because remember, he's one of them, who asked them, the the chief priests and the the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him in? And the guards said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, now listen to the Pharisees. Again, the cancel culture, judgmental attitude. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Oh, here's the morally superior people. They've got it all figured out. They've got nothing wrong with them. It's everybody else that's wrong. And see how wrong that attitude is? They were missing out on the most important truth that was right there among them. Now, here is something really cool. Here's where Nick... He had a chance. He could have caved to the peer pressure and not said a word. And yet he was cautious. Remember, he was, he was kind of cautiously curious. And he's still been thinking about everything that Jesus said and weighing all this. And I'm sure because he was fair-minded, he's like, man, this sure doesn't seem fair the way they're treating Jesus. And Nicodemus speaks up here in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, talking about one of their own number in the Sanhedrin, one of their own number, the Pharisees. He speaks up and he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? There he is. Nicodemus wants to hear, let's, let's hear all the evidence. Let's not just rush to judgment. 
and look at the peer pressure his colleagues put on him. I think Nicodemus started to see where he was really fitting in and where he didn't fit in. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And here again, in their arrogance, they weren't even realizing that what they said wasn't true because they themselves didn't understand the scriptures well enough. In fact, Jesus called them on it different times. Uh, he, he, he talked to the Pharisees and he said, you know, you, see this, you search the scriptures to find about what Messiah is and the scriptures speak of me and here I am. So we've got to be careful when we speak about certain things that we know what we're talking about. So here, what can we learn from the example of Nicodemus? Here's a personal application. Number one, don't let negative peer pressure keep you from seeking the truth. In the middle of this cancel culture, whatever it is, don't let that peer pressure keep you from still seeking the truth out and getting all the evidence. Skeptics, if they're fair, should be willing to consider all the evidence, not just what they want to hear and what they want to dismiss. Um, So are you willing... If you're a skeptic, I'm just going to challenge you. If you're a skeptic about this Jesus thing and this Christianity, I'm just asking you a fair question. Are you willing to consider all the evidence? Not just what you've heard. Are you willing to read the scripture for yourself? Are you willing to listen to the testimony of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus still today, along with learning about all that Jesus has done and Christianity has done in the past in world history? I know that it's taken some some veers, and there are people who have called themselves Christians that have done some terrible things, but that is that's human nature. It happens everywhere. But what you see is in, in Christ. Uh, He is disciplining, correcting us so that we'll stay on the right path. And the other question for you and I today as a follower of Jesus is, are you willing to speak up in the face of peer pressure? Or are you bowing to it? The third and final time that uh, Nicodemus is mentioned is actually now after they ignored Nick's uh, suggestion. Oh, they put on a trial, but it was a fake trial. It was a mock trial. They hired uh, witnesses to come in and tell lies about Jesus. Jesus stayed true. He told the truth the whole time through his trial. In fact, um, you know, the, the thing that basically led to his crucifixion is the high priest said, tell us whether or not you are the son of God. Are you the son of God? And Jesus wasn't going to lie. So he said, yep, it is as you say. And then they didn't believe him. Tore the road. Blasphemer. Let's cancel him. Let's, let's crucify him. Let's get rid of him. We don't want to hear this anymore. And so that's what they did. And Jesus, in the midst of that, did it because he loved those that were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was doing all this for you and I. And it's kind of in a moment I'm going to go back to that little illustration that Jesus gave about the, the Moses and that serpent on a pole in the desert. But let me just read this. Let's look at it in John 19, beginning in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. So this is now after Christ has been crucified. The day of his crucifixion, they bring his body down off the cross. And it says this, Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Pay close attention to that. He was afraid of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. With Pilate's permission, 
He came and took the body away. Now look at this amazing fact. He was accompanied by Nick. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Why do you think Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple because he was afraid of what the Jewish leaders would think of him, why in the world would he let Nick come and assist him? I think it was because God's Spirit was working on Nick. And though he had been cautiously curious, he felt the Lord working in his life, he was thinking, and God was leading him on a process, leading him to belief and faith in Christ. We don't know it for sure because it doesn't say, but man, it sure sounds like it when you look at all of the clues. And then let's see what else Nicodemus did. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's a bunch of stuff, 75 pounds. This gives evidence that Nicodemus realized Jesus, I still don't understand all about who you are, but I believe you are from God, and I don't know why you died on the cross, but I want to honor you. Because the amount of aloes and myrrh and everything that Nick brought to put on Jesus' body was really enough to bury royalty. It was, it was the kind of thing you would do for a king. And so Nicodemus still was wanting to honor Jesus. I just wonder... If maybe Nick kept thinking back about this reference that Jesus made about as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Because here's that story. You can find it uh, in Numbers. And uh, anyway, it was at a time on that journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, as God was directing the people, they began to complain because they got a little hungry and they got a little uncomfortable and they didn't have enough stuff that they wanted to drink. And so they started to complain against God after God had done all of this stuff. And the Bible says that God is like a parent. Uh, He loves us, but he will discipline us. And so he wanted to address their attitude. And so this might sound mean, but again, it was to discipline them and to teach them a lesson. And so God allowed these snakes to begin to crawl out of places uh, on their journey, and it would start biting the people. Those snakes would bite the people. They're referred to as fiery serpents. I don't think they were on fire and flaming, you know. It's just these serpents, when they bit, it probably burnt like fire, and actually some of the people died from the snake bites. And so then they started crying out to God, and they're like, God, uh, we're putting two to two and two together here. We complained about you. This is happening to us. We're sorry. uh, Sorry for complaining. Please forgive us. Make these snakes stop and go away. And then he told Moses to do something really weird. He said, Moses, I want you to take a bronze pole and I want you to fashion a snake and I want you to put it on that pole and I want you to lift that pole up and if anyone will look to that snake on that pole, they will be healed. What? God, God, you said not to make a graven image and now you're telling me to make a graven image. And, and not only that, but it's a snake. It isn't like the snake is symbol for the serpent and, and Satan, or a symbol for the serpent. The serpent is symbol for Satan, and now you're saying to put Satan up on a pole? What is that all about? I don't know this to be true or a fact, but this is something I felt in my spirit maybe God was showing me because I had a question about it. Is number one, he told Moses to do that, not so the people would worship that snake, but as a way of getting rid of that snake and the snake bite and the effects of the snake. Number two, he didn't say put it on a platform. He said stick it on a pole. So I get this image of like a spear going right through a snake, like killing it. 
that gave me kind of a new image. Oh, okay. Now, I, now it's seeming a little more sense. And then you hold it up high, that snake that's being slain on that pole, and when people look at it, they're showing that even though it doesn't make sense to them, they're obeying me and they're doing it by faith. They're putting their belief into action and I'm going to heal them. They don't have to do a thing. All they got to do is respond by faith and look at that snake on a pole. And people did it and they were healed. Why, of all of the things in the Bible that Jesus could have picked, why did Jesus refer to that and say, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up? I can't help but think when Nick saw Jesus hanging on the cross, he got the image of the serpent on the pole, and maybe it started connecting in his brain. Oh my gosh. Satan is the serpent, the serpent is being slain. Jesus is the perfect son of God, and he's taking all of the punishment that that snake and the sin and everything it represents, he's taking it while he's being hung on that cross. And, and Jesus said if we just look, we could live, if we would look and believe. Maybe Nick started putting two and two together, and when he saw Jesus hanging on the cross, he realized he is taking the death that the the sin and, and all that Satan has brought into the world, Jesus has taken that on himself. And if we just believe in him, we can be forgiven and we can be healed from the snake bite, the sin that affects us. I believe that's what Jesus was meaning and referring to. And I'm not the only one because the apostle Paul writes in Corinthians talking about Jesus, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And all we need to do is to look to Jesus and believe and trust. Here's the thing. When Nick put the, all of that stuff on Jesus' body, it says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here's the awesome thing that I was thinking. Nick's probably already beginning to be a believer now. And even though he doesn't understand that Jesus has died and he wasn't sure what was going to happen next, he didn't know that the best was yet to be. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine after Christ rose from the dead, if Nick had any doubts at that point, how it must have blossomed his faith and he realized the risen Lord and he began to understand about being spiritually born again and how Christ's spirit in you can make a difference. So what can we learn? Nicodemus, though he was skeptical, he was respectful and responsive. He cooperated with the disciple of Jesus while he contemplated the claims. Instead of fighting against them all the time, he's like, oh, I'm going to get to know these followers of Jesus and see what's up with them. What are they like? How has Jesus changed their life? If you've been contemplating Christianity but staying away from church or staying away from Christians, I would just encourage you. And I know some of you are going to say, yeah, I know a few Christians, and that's why I don't go to church. Well, check out some other Christians because not everybody is the same. And then the last thing I would ask you is just how much proof do you really need? Because sometimes it doesn't matter how much proof, 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 proof can be shown and people's hearts are just hard and they're never going to believe. In fact, we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. So what about you? How are you responding? Whether it's as a skeptic 
Are you willing to consider all the evidence? Are you willing to, to check it out more, be cautiously uh, curious, and try to get your questions answered? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you willing to, to speak up in the face of negative peer pressure? How will we respond? Uh, we can learn a lot from Nick. And uh, it's interesting that though Nick came at night, uh, in a lot of ways it was kind of the, a spiritual dawn for him. So would you stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity today once again to bring your word. Thank you for the things that you are showing me. And, and I just pray, Lord, that what I've shared today has been from your spirit and your heart. And Lord, I want to know the truth. I want to see the truth. And I believe you are the truth and have come to know you are the truth. But Lord, I understand. I don't think I know it all, but I'm trusting you do. And so, Lord, help all of us as, as your followers to just grow in our understanding of you and help us to continue to learn, to have a teachable heart. Even though Nicodemus was a teacher, he was still willing to be taught. Help us to continue to be willing to be taught and learn and to discover the truth um, in you. For I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.